This is the Only in Miami show, hosted by Grant Stern. Tonight's show is underwritten by Morningside Mortgage Corporation. Morningside Mortgage Corporation keeps the Only in Miami show commercial free. You can find them online at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern, and you can find the entire show at www.onlyinmiamishow.com. Podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more at www.onlyinmiamishow.com. We're live with Karu Paparitz. He is the cowboy philosopher. Karu, you on the line? Yes, sir, Grant. Good to hear from you. Thanks for calling in. So we're you're going to be here in Miami this week, correct, for the Miami oh, International my, Book I, Fair? You got it. I can't wait. I've never uh, I've never been in Miami before, so um, it's a long ride on the horse, and I should be there in a couple of days. Oh, you better start now, then, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry; it's the Wild West here too. You'll feel right at home. Sounds like my cup of tea. Great. So you're going to be at the Miami Book Fair International. What day are you going to be appearing there live? I will be there. Uh, Friday and Saturday, Friday afternoon and Saturday most of the day, especially. Um, I'll just be walking around. You'll see a guy literally in a cowboy hat walking around. I'll probably be the only one, so uh, come on up and say howdy. Okay. Well, I'm encouraging our audience to say hello if they see you. So tell us a little bit about The Legacy Letters, which is the first book to win awards for both fiction and nonfiction. How do you do that? How, How do you yeah, rustle that into the barn? That is, <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. Um, it looks like it's, well, first of all, the Legacy Letters is, is essentially this love story about life. This father who will never live to see his kids um, leaves behind a series of letters, practical, moral, and spiritual letters, that eventually become their guidebook to the rest of their lives, and there's a bit of a love story in it for his wife also. So that's where it starts. But what's become unusual is these letters, these letters about saying please and thank you, and marriage, and love, and money, and all these things. And even though this is inspirational fiction, it's actually people are taking it so much to heart, they're using it as their own guidebook to life, as their own life lessons. Okay. So it's really very... It's got some spiritual lessons, but this is not... Well, how did it become not okay? So it's nonfiction because people are really taking it to heart. Yeah, that's it. They're interpreting it as that, and so the the, the people that make these decisions are saying, "Wow, this book apparently is more than just a fictional story. These letters are actually teaching us how to reminding us what's important in life." Bottom line. That's very cool. So, yeah. Do you have do you have a short 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 excerpt that you'd like to share with our audience? Anything Ooh, that's ready? Oh, a short excerpt. Yeah, let me go. I can find you a quick short fun excerpt. All right, this is on the every. This is uh, one of the letters. It's called the Everything and Nothing of Money. Can you buy a? Uh, can money buy you a house? Of course, but it cannot make you a home. It can buy you a friend, but never friendship. This has to be earned. It can buy. Uh, it can buy you a person's obligation, but never his loyalty. It can make you put up with your. Um, it can make you put up with your work, but never make you love it. You can buy power with money, but never respect. It can buy you pills galore, 
but it cannot buy you true health. That's awesome. Thank yeah, you for sharing cool that letter. with us. That's yeah, very no, cool. Thank letter. you. So, where can our audience find you online on Twitter? On Twitter, well, that's uh, Legacy Letters uh, Twitter dot com. Um, basically, the the best place to find and read the book right now is um, or excerpts in the book is at thelegacyletters.com. Okay. And uh, we've got lots of wonderful quotes and uh, two-page excerpts of the book, and you can actually uh, see some videos of me where I, was, I did a, um, a whistle-stop, an old-fashioned whistle-stop book tour this summer along the entire East Coast from Orlando to Niagara Falls, and then I was up in Washington State doing uh, book signings on top of volcanoes and on, uh, on whitewater rivers, and uh, so that I've had a really busy summer. That sounds like it. Sounds like you've been wrestling a lot more than cattle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. But it's been, it's fun. And people ask me, well, why are you, why are you doing all these really different things and wonderful things? I said, you know what? This, the man in this book who wrote these letters is passionate about living. And I said, I feel the same way, and I want to convey that energy and that passion in the things that I do. So, yeah, I, I, I have a lot of fun and uh, get the message out, and people are, uh, they go, wow, this is fascinating. And then they read the book, and they can't believe it, and we go from there. Well, Karu, thank you very much for calling into the show tonight. It's it's Grant, definitely been a pleasure. Grant, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, and I look forward to being in Miami. All righty. We'll see you at the Miami Book Fair International this weekend, Friday and Saturday. Sounds great. We'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find us online at www.onlyinmiamishow.com. We were just there with Karu Paparitz. He is the cowboy philosopher, and definitely check him out on Twitter at Legacy Letters. He's going to be at the Miami Book Fair International this Friday and Saturday, and he promises that he'll probably be the only guy in full cowboy gear, and I agree. Unless, Tim, are you going to... Go I can't cowboy? make any promises, but he he may want to watch his uh his promises there. Oh yeah, 
Now I got, I got some I got some tricks in my wardrobe. <laughs> so we're here with Tim Elfrink. He's the managing editor of the Miami New Times and author of Bloodsport. I just like saying that. It's have <laughs> it to make sure people don't confuse it with the Jean Claude Van Damme Van Damme movie, which uh, I wish was the no. That's film a single book, word. Bloodsport. That's true. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a distinction here. Two words. Right. So it's Bloodsport. Alex Rodriguez. Biogenesis. And the quest to end baseball's steroid era. And I've got a co-host who couldn't make it into the studio, but he's chomping at the bit on Skype. His name is the Drastic Fanatic. He's kind of a baseball fan. Oh, excellent. Although, forgive him, he's a Mets fan. That's all right. Well, we've got room for everybody under this Big Ten here. <laughs> even, the, even those delusional Mets fans. My, actually, my, I, he should know, my, my co-author on the book, Gus Garcia Roberts, is also a huge Mets fan. So he's, oh, yeah. he's in good company. So uh, you grew up in St. Louis. Are you a, a Cards fan? Oh, of course. Yeah, they don't uh, they don't let you stay in the city limits if you're not a Cardinals fan. It's a uh, it's an incredible baseball town. Yeah, they they actually have a lot of issues with city limits there, from what I understand. <laughs> That's a whole other story. <laughs> There's quite That's a few a weird story. weird laws there. So were you surprised when the whole Ferguson thing erupted? I mean, uh, you you're from that area. You probably yeah. No, I I mean. Uh, I, I would never have expected something like that to occur, but you know, St. Louis is an incredibly segregated city, and it's you know I think it's something people in Miami take a little bit for granted. You know, not that we don't have serious issues in Miami with you know uh, segregation. I mean, it is segregation. We we have very distinct neighborhoods here. You know, we're, we're not nearly as mixed of a city as we like to believe we are culturally. But when you look at a city like St. Louis. Uh, and, and it's true of a lot of Midwestern cities. You know, it dates back to the Civil War, where you have a straight division down the center of town. The south half of the city is almost 100% white. The north half of the city is almost 100% black. There's very, very little movement on either side. And the the real problem is that the distribution of resources and infrastructure is is just terribly unequal. Uh, the distribution of opportunity is terribly unequal, and it's a recipe for this kind of unrest and this kind of injustice to happen. Uh, you know, you hate to say it, but it's 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 absolutely true. Well, one of the big injustices that seems to be going on there is that there's this proliferation of balkanized municipalities. There's a, a million little tiny municipalities, and then the prosecutor in one municipality is the public defender in another is the, you know, and, and everybody is, it seems to be so interbred. Why did that patchwork kind of sprout there? Because it just seems like th these governments have no reasons to exist, except to somehow tax their citizens. It's very odd. It is very. It's a very strange system, and uh, you know, in St. Louis, uh, it dates all the way back to the end of the uh, 19th century. They had a chance to incorporate this growing, you know, county around the municipal area and make it a you know a unified government and it was the city that actually refused to do it because at the time the city was the prosperous area that the outlying counties and smaller towns you know it would have leached resources and infrastructure and so that's the government drew a line and set it and it was one of the earliest cities in the country to do that and as a result it's it's the actual city of st louis it's a tiny municipal area and you know you have all these tiny little towns that, are, that basically you know, like you said, it exists mostly, you know, as their own little entities. And I mean, it really Miami does has some it. similarity there. But you do that have Miami is, is a lot smaller than the county, but Miami is a very significantly sized city. It's significantly sized. It's it's a larger, significantly larger city than the city of St. Louis, and and you also have a stronger county government. You know, the 
there is a St. Louis County government, but it has much less oversight and, and power over these smaller towns than compared to a Miami-Dade County does. So let's delve into the ocean that is the baseball steroid scandal. <laughs> and I'm going to bring the drastic fanatic in. He's on Skype right now. How are you, Tim? Hey, I'm great. How are you doing? Good, buddy. So, I mean, you were were you in St. Louis during the, the Mark McGuire home run chase? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's really when I came of age as a as a baseball fan was um, you know watching those years. I, I actually saw the first home run that McGuire ever hit for the Cardinals in person at, at Bush Stadium, and uh, you know it's it's something in hindsight you know that I find pretty upsetting to to look back at that time and you know to realize a lot of the things that were happening in the background as as a you know as a young baseball fan that you just had no idea were were going on behind the scenes yeah and no, i i agree i uh that was after the strike i was a baseball fan like as a younger kid and then we got the marlins right around the time that i as a guy discovered these uh female people <laughs> um but then there was there was the big strike and then all of a sudden it was into the home run derbies and uh yeah, I mean it was a huge uh you know it's it's one reason that the the problem of steroids wasn't addressed for going on two decades because there's no question it it was a big part of the the game's economic recovery from the strike the fact that fans, you know, like me flocked to the stadiums to watch guys like Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. And uh you know really they had bigger economic issues they had to worry about uh compared to steroids at the time it really felt like an afterthought. Uh, you know, the, you're four years removed from a huge strike. There's still a lot of friction between the union, between the owners. It just wasn't an issue that was on anybody's radar going into uh, going into 1998, 1999. Now, I mean, Jose Canseco, uh, I think his career had already blown up by then and blown up in a bad way, like uh, tailspin. Absolutely, yeah. That was that was the last years of uh, of Canseco, and he. he you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, obviously biogenesis, you know, is in, in terms of suspensions, in terms of the big picture, it's the biggest steroid scandal in the history of baseball right here in Miami. But, you know, you go back to the beginnings of the drugs uh, explosion in the game, and it also comes back to Miami. You know, it really was a local kid named Jose Canseco that was the pioneer that brought this drug into the sport. There was there was a huge amount of uh, you know perception that it, it wouldn't help baseball players before Jose Canseco came along and just obliterated that idea because he was so openly using. He was so inconspicuous. Yeah, right. And he was so successful. I mean, he was a guy. He his, was the forty forty guy. Yeah, his rookie year, the first he, one to hit forty home runs exactly, and have forty stolen bases in the same season. Yeah, and. You know, there there was kind of an old wives' tale before then that if you took steroids, it would ruin your swing, it would ruin your pitching motion. You know, it's great for football players, but it's just it's not something that would help you in baseball. And, and you couldn't at that point. Jose came in and did that, and you just you, there was no way to to live under that illusion anymore. So, you know, he really did bring it into the sport in a, in a big way. I I don't know if I, I agree with you there because they did live under that illusion, and that illusion lasted for decades. Well, but not among not among players, you know, is the key distinction here. You know, once one reason that you know steroids, when you go back to the the history, you know, the the first mass-produced steroid was introduced in the late '50s in in America, and within five years or so, it had it had become fairly accepted in the NFL among players. You know, not 
obviously it's a like accepted policy, but it became widespread use because it was so obvious how much it could help you as well, a player. I, I think they were taking like cortisone shots, like to stay in the game, sure. to, to numb down the pain, but they sure. weren't necessarily taking it to work out. Back in those days, or were the they? NFL players? Absolutely, you know. I found a uh, a lot of fascinating lawsuit uh, fire, filed by a former uh, San Diego Chargers player who described in the sixty three sixty four training camp that they were actually uh, required to take steroids. They were given anabolic steroids with their meals at the training camp and were punished if they weren't if they wouldn't take them. And he later settled with the team. They didn't dispute these charges. And other players have have corroborated that this happened. Wow! He, the guy's name is Houston Ridge. You can look it up on uh, on on the internet. The suits are widely available. Um, and now, wait a minute. What kind of cigarette did the team doctor recommend <laughs> back then? It's a great question. <laughs> but it's 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 really a cultural difference you're talking about because among football players, you know, there's no question that getting huge and getting strong will help you. Among baseball players, it's a very traditional sport. The greatest yeah, but, player but, in history was a big tubby guy named Babe Ruth. He wasn't like a statuesque, ripped athlete. Well, he he was statuesque, but maybe <laughs> in not the same dimensions. That exactly, you're of. that's true. Um, but but that's the thing though. Like in football, they did ban these things, and they te- they've been testing for them since the 1980s. Since I think Lyle Alzado was a big turning point for the NFL. He was a yeah. very prominent player who self-destructed awfully because of steroids, and it was just very. Sure. Clear. Yeah, and then they had Bill Romanowski. I mean, they had a number of guys that 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 exploded in a really public way that that forced them to confront it earlier than baseball did. There's well, no Romanowski doubt about that. Well, Romanowski was in the sport for many years. He was he was the renegade. He was yeah. the one successfully hiding it. But I mean, they they had a real testing regime to try and stop players they, back in the the late 80s early 90s i believe that's right yeah it was the it was the early 80s when they first started passing bans on it and uh you know baseball was really late to the game there's no doubt about it i mean the you know my my favorite story on that is during the uh the home run trace when when mark mcguire famously got caught with with andro in his locker which is a steroid precursor it was already banned in every other sport and bud selig the commissioner of the sport was so clueless that he went to his neighborhood pharmacist in Milwaukee and asked the guy, what the heck is this stuff? What does it do? And, you know, this is something that had been banned in the Olympics for two decades at this point. The NFL had banned it. And, you know, it just... And Bud, the, Bud was getting top advice. Yeah, from his, his corner store, drugstore in, in Milwaukee. So, you know, it was it was pretty amazing the, the level of naivete and, and, and ignorance that, that persisted in baseball all the way through the late 90s. Well, Bud was a, uh, if I recall correctly, he owned car lots, right? His, his family did, yeah. yeah. He inherited, yeah, essentially he was a used car salesman. That's, that's right, totally accurate to say. he was a used car say. salesman. And right around, I believe it was 1993, he beat out this other gentleman who was a team owner for the title of Major League Baseball Commissioner. Do you happen to know who that guy was? Well, he, he became interim commissioner in, in 93. He didn't and, get the job full-time until 98. But right. I, who, who was his top rival at that point? George W. Bush, owner of the <laughs> Texas Rangers. He was I certainly a commission. Say, I always say that George, uh, that Bud Sillig destroyed the world. He <laughs> he allowed ties in the All Star game, and he he wound up getting George <laughs> W. Bush elected. I'm I'm comfortable laying that blame on his shoulders. That sounds fair to me. <laughs> it's it's true. So drastic. You've been sitting there patiently. You have some questions for our our wonderful guest here. 
Uh oh. Is he yep. on silent? <laughs> yep. Oh, now I can hear you. We we lost you there for a second. Oh, uh, there you go. Yep. Go for so, it. So um, you know, growing up as a, as a Cardinal fan, as a baseball baseball purist, watching guys like Willie McGee and Vince Coleman, and your biggest power hitter was Jack Clark back then, right? Talk about <laughs> what? what people used to look like in baseball compared to where they are now. So, I mean, you grew up as a as a purist, and now you have to. Your job is basically to you're exposing the whole uh, steroid scandal. Do you feel like it's harder for you to actually enjoy the game of baseball now after everything that you have to dig up? Yeah, it it really is. And I I hate to say that because um, it it really was a big part of my life all the way, you know, from being a little kid to when I really got into the game as a teenager. And I'm glad you mentioned Willie because Willie McGee is my favorite Cardinal of all time. You know, he's a guy who's, uh, you know, swing was yeah. almost as ugly as his uh, as his that mugshot. Right. Um, you know, and he's just an amazing guy with a ton of heart, and just you know, you just loved the way he played the game every day. And you know, it, it has. I have to admit, it has been hard. You know, it's kind of reporting on a story like this. You see a little bit how the sausage is made. You you get behind the curtain. <laughs> you know, and it's it, it makes it a lot harder to enjoy. I mean, I I will say, I do believe having you know reported this thing written a book about it you know gotten so deep into it I, I do think the sports turned a corner I think the most important thing is that most players today compared to even 10 years ago are, are very much against performance enhancing drugs I, I think the the tide has shifted among the players and you see that in the fact that the union doesn't fight suspensions the way they used to and they don't fight new drug policies the way they used to and that's a really good that's a really good sign for the sport because I I think you know if you if you have players behind reform, you know it, it's it's moving in the right direction. But um, and the big reason for that probably is because the people that were abusing steroids were getting rewarded for it financially. Of course, of course, and it, it continues to happen. I mean that that is a big lingering problem. You know, we looked in the epilogue of our book at a lot of the guys wrapped up in this scandal, and you know you look at. Johnny Peralta, he serves his 50-game suspension. He comes back, and he gets a record deal from right. my hometown St. Louis Cardinals um, to to come back. And and that was uh, in large part based on the numbers he put up right. while he was Same using with, testosterone. Uh, what's his name on Baltimore this year from Texas? Yeah. Nelson Cruz is going to get a huge contract. Uh, yep. You know, even – And, and go- ironically, Rafael Palmiero is being ostracized silently – Cold shouldered. It's so crazy how they pick and choose who, who's yeah. who gets the. You know, I mean, it's and, not even fair, honestly. And, and and for those who may not know, Rafael Palmero is a ball player from Miami's Winwood neighborhood. That's right. Who then played in Texas and then went to Baltimore, just like Nelson Cruz. Yep. But because he was a little shaky about admitting it, that's it. You know. Nah, and I I think there is a really interesting distinction there between players who who come clean and who don't, and it's one of the things that's going to be fascinating to watch with with A Rod coming back this spring. You know, not not only has he just so thoroughly embarrassed himself in his sport with this whole scandal, you know, just two weeks ago we finally got 
a federal affidavit where he sat down with with federal agents and admitted, yes, every single thing in the story about me is completely true. How satisfying was that? It was very satisfying. I mean, not that I ever had any doubt, of course, you know, that everything we wrote in this book was completely accurate. Yeah, but, but how, how often do you bust them and then they actually can? <laughs> I mean, usually they just sit there and, you know, pretend deny, like deny, you never deny, had. Deny, yeah, deny yeah. forever. The fact that you got that envelope... Uh, opened up though was pretty interesting too though <laughs> yeah no absolutely and I, I the first thing i did i went back and i pulled the first statement that a-rod sent me through his media people after my first story ran that broke the scandal and it said you know i can't remember the exact quote but it essentially said i've never met tony bosch i've never been his customer everything you've reported is completely untrue and you know to, I, I even then I knew it was a bold-faced lie, but to see it illustrated so clearly as a bold-faced lie is is pretty amazing. The worst part is though he came out and actually took his medicine and admitted it years back, and then he continued. He to did do it again. This. Yeah, that's the craziest part of this whole thing. It is, but you know, I mean, well, he admitted it. Didn't he admit it? Then get another yeah, big contract his... extension. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, he admitted it, and then two years later got a huge new contract extension from the Yankees. But you know, I think we we maybe shed a little bit of light in that in the book because you know one thing we were able to get were these confidential transcripts from his arbitration hearing and. One piece of news, the biggest piece of news that came out of that is that, you know, in 20, 2009 and 2010, he actually got a medical exemption from Major League Baseball to use testosterone, which is the, the you know, king of all anabolic steroids. Because of the hip injury. No, um, we, you know, they don't get into the exact details in the transcripts of how he got the exemption. But the only way you get a testosterone exemption is to prove that your body for whatever reason, is no longer producing its own testosterone. Probably withdrawals from well, the last one, cycle. One reason that most sports make it most sports make it really difficult to get that kind of exemption is if you're a young, healthy athlete, there are very few reasons your body stops making testosterone. And one of those reasons is that you've been using steroids for a really long time. You know, that does destroy your ability to make testosterone. Um, but assuming, you know, that is that is the case his body, for whatever reason, isn't making testosterone, it, it makes a pretty compelling reason why he would go find a guy like Tony Bosch, even knowing everything that was on the table, because competing as a top athlete, if your body has that sort of condition, would be very, very difficult. And it, it you know, it's going to make it really interesting to see what happens this year when he comes back as a, as a 40-year-old guy with the exact same You don't got to tell me. You know? I'm 37, and I don't take any of that stuff. And there are just days when you're like, I wish I was 25 again. Of course, of <laughs> course. And you Let haven't... me ask you a question, Tim. How did you find yourself in the middle of this? Is this a story that you went out and pursued, or is it something you were assigned? Well, actually, wait. You're gonna have to. You're gonna answer his next, because my question was: When you first saw this, did you realize that this was gonna be like an earth-shaking story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it amazingly it goes back to an argument over four thousand bucks here in in Miami between a uh, investor at this clinic called Biogenesis and uh, the owner, Tony Bosch, and the investor uh, didn't get paid back. And so he walked out of the clinic with boxes full of records, you know, thinking he could hold them as collateral to get his money. And uh, he started looking through them and realized what he had, which was evidence that this guy was selling steroids to top athletes on the side. And uh, when he realized that, he, he sent an email to me and he sent one to ESPN and ESPN never got back to him, and I uh, I met the guy the next week and and started going through the records with him, and yeah, pretty pretty quickly realized that this was the real deal, and uh, you know it was about two months later we published our first story that that broke this whole thing open. Now, 
knowing what you know about ESPN today that you did not then, do you think they would have suspended you for breaking <laughs> the biogenesis story? Prob- quite possibly. I do think that's true. I but, mean, think no, about it. Only if you call Bud Selig a liar. Ex- yeah, I know. You can't can't get too hard on the commissioner, apparently, or they take you down over there. Yeah, but this, especially this was, if he's lying. That's the worst part. This this was a case of just straight uh, giant bureaucracy red tape. You know, he he tried to send it to TJ Quinn, their their top investigative guy, and uh, they they wouldn't give him his direct email, and it just basically got lost in the big corporate system over there. So, wow, that's well, really wild. Game, I guess right. Yeah, pays pays to be on the grassroots level. That's what I say. Yeah, it, it certainly does. I'll tell you what, we're going to take a really short break here, just a few minutes worth of music, and we'll be right back with Tim Elfrink. He's the managing editor of the Miami New Times and author of Blood Sport. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. 
This is the Only in Miami Show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find us online at www.onlyinmiamishow.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, Podcasts, and a whole lot more. And the music you've been listening to is by Paolo. It is Tabaco y Ron Pa Mi Santa. We always play that one in honor of the Marlins because what that means in English is it's it's a sacrifice of tobacco and rum for my saint, my patron saint. Kind of like Major League Baseball where Serrano makes the sacrifice to Joe Boo. So we've, we've, dedicated, that. we've dedicated that song to the Marlins all year long. <laughs> I, I like that. You can kind of see that outfield statue as some sort of strange – Santeria ritual, if you uh, really want to, too. So, you know, there's all kinds of connections going on over there. There are. I heard something really interesting this morning on another radio station, which shall not be named. <laughs> um, uh, they were interviewing the Marlins man, and he said that he's been to all these different stadiums in Major League, and the Miami Marlins stadium is the only one that doesn't have a baseball player statue out front. That is fascinating. Ten years, yeah. I was gonna say, Stanton for that kind of money, Stanton better have a uh, better have (laughs) something in bronze out there when it's all said and done. I thought we should put one of Manny Diaz there since he was the guy that made the stadium happen. Bruno Barrero, he's got his uh, big role in this thing too, and maybe Carlos Alvarez to some extent. Yeah, now that uh, I don't know if you've seen pictures of Carlos Alvarez lately, but he's a bodybuilder now. So you get him out there striking a. uh, Muscle man pose, it could be a pretty good statue. Oh, so that's why Billy Corbin keeps wearing that re-elect Alvarez shirt. <laughs> exactly. I knew there was a reason he was such a fanboy, and I never <laughs> got that. You know, I didn't put two and two together. That's right. <laughs> so uh, we're back here. We're with Tim Elfrink. He's the managing editor of the Miami New Times and Drastic Fanatic. Drastic? Yes, sir. Happy Monday. <laughs> so... Let's talk about a little bit of local sports. I don't know if you're a fan of the football game. Of course. So what do you think of these Miami Dolphins? Are you are they for real? You know, I, I would have said two weeks ago, absolutely not. I still do not think <laughs> Ryan Tannehill is the real deal. Really? I think he's getting better, but the guy, he just seems like he's thrown within 30 yards. He's, you know, pretty solid, decent quarterback. And after that, it's... Just, you know, I may as well be out there chucking things at the end zone. And, you know, it's tough to run an NFL team without that deep threat. Well, but, he's uh, got the opposite problem of most quarterbacks. Yeah. You know, like if you told Chad Pennington to throw the ball 60 yards, he would have to run 20 of those yards and then launch the ball. And then a few minutes later, it might arrive. That's true. Uh, with Tanny, the problem is. He doesn't have is, the touch. He doesn't have the touch on it. But he's got the cannon. Yeah. Yeah. He might get He might get there. Uh, you know, and I. I just have always thought Philbin is just like such a picture of mediocrity as a coach, but um, you know you got to say he's he's gotten a pretty good result out of the team thus far. Uh, you know I don't know I'd be putting any future stocks in in him as a uh, Hall of Fame uh, head coach, but you know can't argue with <laughs> six and four. He's back next year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's probably made it back next year. Drastic. What do you think? Do you think that this Dolphins team is for real? They're they're not in last pace Lakers. I'm still Jets. looking other than week one against the Patriots, I'm still looking for that big staple win. Now that, that win against the Bears kind of lost its mustard a little bit a few weeks later, uh, after watching them perform the last few weeks. Well, it's but, not the Dolphins' look, fault that the Bears Bills, stink. The maybe no we put something backs. on them, you know? What's that? Maybe we took something away from them with that win. Come uh, on, you know? I don't know. I don't know if they had anything to begin with. <laughs> 
But um, look, they they beat a Bills team that they had to beat, you know, to keep the keep the season alive. And um, I'm lo- I'm looking for another big big win here by the Dolphins to really show me that they're for real. I think I think just getting Jeff Ireland out of the house has added some mojo to the uh, right. to the that franchise. That was addition by so, subtraction, right? Yeah, Grant- exactly. I think that that brought him a long ways forward, but I don't know. I just, I'm still weirded out. I I feel like Philbin's the only guy who gives Rick Scott a run for his money for the guy who looks the most like a Scooby Doo villain in the state of Florida. That's true. They look That's eerily true. similar. Eerily Tim, similar. Tim just wrote a story today. I saw about a former Dolphin, another another Dolphin in the in the news for all the wrong reasons. That's right? right, Phil Merling. That's right. Uh oh, yeah. what did Phil do? Well, there's a big uh, investigation in the New York Times this weekend. Um, you know, it's uh, going back four years, but he uh, now Philip Merling was a, a second or third round draft pick from Clemson. He's right. a defensive lineman. That's right. And uh, he and was it, picked by I think the the Nick Satan era guys. That's a great question. I can't remember if it was that or, or right after. Or no, no, he was maybe early Ireland. Yeah, he was right on that borderline. Yeah. But happened he, so uh, fast, one than the other than the other. He in May in May 2010, he uh, he beat up his his girlfriend, his fiance, who was pregnant at the time. Classy. Yeah, always uh, always a, a quality quality move on the human being level. Characteristic you look for in a young man, right? Yep. And uh, not only did the uh, team not suspend him at all, nor the NFL. The according to the New York Times investigation, the team actually immediately put pressure on the Broward Sheriff's deputies to tr- give him special treatment, escort him out of the jail, take him back to his house in a squad car to get all of his stuff, you know, immediately after beating this woman up. Wow. And, uh, you know, pretty quickly got the uh, charges dropped in the case. So it's 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 definitely another black eye for the NFL and, and for a franchise that uh, has had its own issues with domestic violence. Well, the Broward Sheriff's Office itself was uh, really, really tarnished by the sheriff, the ele- uh, Ken Jenny, the elected sheriff, mm-hmm. who was in bed with Scott Rothstein, the Ponzi of course, schemer. Of and that was all right around that same time. Of course. And, and in fact, the, um, the, uh, the sheriff at the time ended up investigating the Merlin case and uh, actually forbid uh, deputies from working at, Mar- at uh, Sun Life Stadium for a while afterwards because there was such a clear conflict going on where so many deputies were going there, getting off-duty work all the time, getting into the locker room, that they would basically do anything for the team. You know, it, you know, there was absolutely no uh, borderline there between working for the team and doing favors for players who were constantly getting in trouble. So it's, it's pretty disgusting. Yeah, of circumstances. Jenny did leave that office in 2007, so it was probably a success. It was Lamberti who was in charge at that okay. point. And and Lamberti, to his credit, did an investigation, changed some policies, demoted one guy involved in the case. Uh, but, you know, obviously the, the root problem there I don't think has gone away in the four years since that happened. Well, a friend of mine uh, who works for Bloomberg News up in New York wrote a book. It's nothing to do with sports, but... <clears throat> it describes something that's happening in the financial world. The book by Bob Ivory is called The Seven Deadly Sins of Wall Street. Mm. Uh, very catchy title. <laughs> and um, and one of the things that he writes about, it's called regulatory capture. Mm-hmm. And, and he discusses it in the book frequently. Capture, just being a term that describes when the watchdog is enticed, uh, enticed or, or captured by the one being watched. Mm, sure. So in his case, he was talking about bank regulators being captured, 
where the regulators yeah. over-identify with the banks. But this is the same thing. The, Absolutely. the police are too close to the team. They over-identify with the team. The team has a problem. Yeah. And then maybe some new laws apply. Yeah. And in the financial world, obviously, money is the biggest player there. You know, they have regulators that are constantly getting poached by banks and offered, you know, five well, times the salary they had before. And Well, they're paid when they leave. Yeah. But it's like they see what happens, you know. Yeah. And so whereas and so with- pissed off the banks. He got promoted to supervisor. He makes 72000 a year. So-and-so was very nice to the banks. He... He just, you know, left rather than resign. He's making, you know, $5 million sure. a year. Yeah, and the deputies, I think, some of it was money. There definitely was off-duty work happening. But a lot of it was just straight Capture. celebrity. You Capture. know, I mean, it was the chance to hang out with football players, get and, access and, to the locker room. And, and that's what he identified. That's what Bob Ivory identified as capture in that they, it's not just – it's not a pay-for-play. It's not. It's not yeah. a, well, there's a key pro quo here. I see that. It's just over-identification. Sure, sure. Uh, it's 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 a major issue, and when you have uh, you know, I think it it gets to that rude point of the sort of increasingly insidious role that pro sports play in our our society, from politics through obviously criminal justice, and you you see the way a guy like Philip Merling was treated when he did something as atrocious as as hitting a pregnant woman, and seeing no kind of uh, blowback for that, and you, you know, it, it raises yeah. some really serious questions. Yeah, what does it say to the next guy? And then it, uh, even up to recently, you still have Dolphins getting in trouble in Broward County, even up to uh, the beginning of the season, getting suspended. Well, let's let's move on from that topic. I don't know if everybody can hear drastic too well through the, the monitor there. Uh, yeah, I, I got you back now, drastic. I, I lost you there on that question. All right, bud. <laughs> Sorry about that. I got it. Tim, you got to tell me quickly about what's the latest story with Manny Ramirez and the elderly uncle. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that sounds. That sounds. Anything to do with know, Manny invokes the phrase Manny being Manny. So how yeah. is Manny being Manny? This, this, is, a, uh, this, this is a good one. It's a good one. Well, this this story comes uh, from my co-author Gus Garcia Roberts, who's a uh, he's a former Miami New Times writer. He worked with me at down here in Miami for about four years, and. Uh, has moved uh, up to uh, New York. He, he works on the investigative team at Newsday now. And uh, he has a story out last week. He was able to get a look at some of the sealed documents in the case against Tony Bosch, the guy running the Biogenesis Clinic. And the uh, the story here, this is all according to Tony Bosch, you know, the guy who ran the clinic. But he told Major League Baseball, going back to, this is in 2008, Manny Ramirez famously was suspended for uh, failing a drug test for testosterone. You know, we now know that Manny was a client of Tony Bosch. That's where he was getting his drugs from the same clinic, you know, that later would include A-Rod. They were popular. A very popular guy. And uh, the new information that, you know, this came from Bosch talking to the, to federal agents, he says that when Manny failed, his agent, Scott Boris, who is, of course, the a mega agent. Super agent in baseball. He represents, uh, uh, what's his face, Jose Fernandez as well. Yeah. I mean, he's Marlins. he's still the man in terms of agents. So according to Bosch, Scott Boris uh, essentially conspired with him to try to cover up this failed test. And the excuse that Scott Boris worked up was that Manny had mistaken his uncle's testosterone cream for aftershave and had put it on his <laughs> face. 
<laughs> before going out and that it was you know you know how manny is with the ladies that he yeah. you know he's he's so obsessed with uh you know something yes, the, with the ladies that he would man. mistake yeah. Yeah, testosterone yeah. cream for aftershave it probably smells like ben gay after a bender <laughs> it cannot smell that great i mean this is like yeah so Dude. it was it was a pretty amazing excuse obviously it didn't work uh, manny ended up suspended 50 games and it really kind of tarnished his reputation uh, but you got to you got to tip your tarnished before. Yeah, you got to you got to tip your cap for uh, for trying to uh, to Scott Boris and his crew if if Tony Bosch is telling the truth about that whole story. So how can we, as a society, how can we stop rewarding these people? Like seriously, how can we stop rewarding these people for all this mashugana? You know, oh, you you took enough steroids. Well, we're gonna slap your hands. Thanks for letting us know. Here's a new contract. How can we how can we stop this? Well, I mean, I I think the good news here is public opinion did play a major role in this. You know, you look at where baseball is compared to pre-Balco uh, scandal in 2005. Uh, baseball has the toughest policies in any major league sport at this point. You know, they have the toughest testing policies. They have the toughest suspension. They're the first sport to test for human growth hormone. They, they do carbon isotope testing, which is a way to find synthetic molecules in the blood, which and, no other sport does. And now what I hear is that high schools, because high schools do not have testing, mm -hmm. high schools are the new hotbed for steroid abuse. Oh, of course. Yeah. There's no question. I mean, Tony Bosch has admitted his own clinic to uh, selling steroids to 18 high school athletes in Miami. And that's what he's admitted to. So there's very good evidence that it was a much larger group than that. Um, and that's just in Miami. I mean, that's that's a situation nationwide. So I, I think that if there is a good news here, it's that, you know, the fact that people got so upset at the Balco scandal, you know, Selig was dragged before Congress. There was just tons of bad press. And, you know, 10 years later, baseball has the toughest policies in sport. And I do think that the tide has changed to some extent in terms of steroids. But, I mean, how do we keep the next generation from abusing these drugs if it's, if it's happening in high schools well i think um, that i think the biggest piece is education i really do and i, I know that's maybe sort of a, a cliched answer but you know i was pretty critical of you know miami dade uh public schools and as a response to biogenesis has announced that they're going to try a steroid uh testing pilot program and you know i talked to a lot of experts when they announced that and there's actually pretty good consensus that testing in high school does not make any kind of sense because it's really expensive. You can't afford the tests that are actually going to catch anyone. It's just going to reinforce belief that nobody is doping because all you can afford is these, these terrible tests that you would have to be a moron to fail. And, and so and nobody's maybe, ever going to fail. Maybe it sends kids into even worse drug co cocktails to try Absolutely. and cheat the tests. Absolutely. And I think the much more effective policy it's been shown is just education. I mean, and on, on two fronts, you know, on one front on the major league level to show that guys who get there by doping end up like, you know, maybe like Alex Rodriguez where you your name is dragged through the mud, you're eventually caught and it's all goes down the tubes and you're lonely He's, and wealthy. Yeah, unfortunately it's not a great <laughs> example because there's currently no financial blowback and the guy's going to be a hugely well, wealthy it. man for you the, have rest to of show life. the financial. But on the other side, his body apparently doesn't produce testosterone anymore and if I'm 16 years old and I understand that abusing these drugs means that my testicles are going to, you know, shrivel up and not 
function anymore, that's a pretty good disincentive to uh, to not to not uh, try this stuff. So you got to think that's maybe the best policy going forward. Yeah, uh, it's it's a scary uh, prospect to face, and I, I think that uh, that a lot of these kids really don't get it. It's not like a joke when you say, "Oh, well, you know, your cojones are just going to shrivel up into a bunch of grapes and be about as useful to you," and and they just kind of look at you like. What's That'll never happen about? to me. Nah, somebody else. Yeah. They have to stop rewarding yeah. the, the Nelson Cruises of the world, though, too, because <laughs> once they show that you won't gain from it financially, that's when um, it'll really stick that it's not worth doing. Yeah, there, that's a great point. And, you know, again, you know, we looked at Alex, Alex Rodriguez and Ryan Braun just as two examples. You know, Ryan Braun, another guy, University of Miami star who got caught up in the scandal uh, and you know, Braun signed a monster contract the year after he failed a testosterone test while on Tony Bosch's drugs. Alex Rodriguez has, you know, earned more money than any modern baseball player based on a career that we now know was almost totally fueled by these drugs. And, you know, the one point that the union will not bend on is touching a player's contract due to failing a drug test. Right. You know, that's the one issue that, that you know, they will have no wiggle room on whatsoever. And I, I do think you're right that until, you know, we called it paying the, the 5% steroid tax. You know, you look at the the amount of money a guy like Alex Rodriguez actually lost due to his season-long ban compared to the, the contract he signed. Right. Yeah, from the, the numbers that fueled that contract based on steroids. And it's 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 pennies. And you know, as long as that financial incentive is there, there's always going to be guys willing to risk the uh, the blowback of getting caught. So instead of testing in high school, maybe what should happen is some of these, these major universities, before they issue scholarships, they should test the players. And then sure. if you fail before, then they'll take away your scholarship. That might make them think twice. Yeah, but baseball is not primarily a college-driven. No, but uh, I'm just saying sport. in general, football, any any of those. You know, uh, now they are testing in the minor the leagues now. Yeah. They yeah. just started testing in minor leagues. No, my, minors have tested. In fact, minors actually started a season before the majors. Yeah, they started because, a little bit ahead, but because the thing is, the the minors well, uh, they tested it there. The minors aren't the minors aren't unionized, so uh, the commissioner can do whatever he want with minor leaguers. So it's actually a lot easier for him to to bring in any kind of reform he wants to try. But you know, college is a great point because another another big piece of our book, you know, is the University of Miami's ties to this scandal and. To, to be honest, their response has been an embarrassing level of silence to this thing. You know, they've had... Well, I mean, the University of Miami has been on a hot streak under Donna Shalala. Um, they have a biogenesis problem. Uh, they have a Nevin Shapiro problem. Absolutely. And then at the same time as Nevin Shapiro is going on, they were secretly rezoning a bunch of sensitive environmentally... Just give uh, it away to Walmart. To, Why not? Yeah, and selling it off to Walmart. Yeah. Um, is it any wonder Donna Shalala decided to take retirement and become a no. professor for life with her golden parachute? No, it's 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 a huge problem. And now they've got, you know, one of their former pitching coaches is indicted in the biogenesis scandal. Uh, you know, a huge number of their former players were clients at this place. And... You know, they're still playing all their home games on Alex Rodriguez Field, which is, uh, you know, the guy gave him $4 million. It's not easy to give $4 million back and take the name off, but how much bad press is that costing you at this point to have that name on there? I think it's actually quite appropriate. I don't see why they would uh, remove that. Maybe they can find some toilets and name them after Donna Shalala. <laughs> 
Could have the the Nevin Shapiro hot dog stand out there in the, <laughs> the right field corner, maybe. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> he, he did stuff a lot of crap into something. You know? <laughs> That's exactly right. Ay, coño. Man, what's up with this University of Miami? I used to think they were the good guys. No, it's it's been it's been tougher and tougher, and uh, you know it'd be one thing if the the results on the field matched the uh, level of scandal that they're putting out there. You know, it's like you know, and I I hate to say this to uh, our fanatic here wearing his his U shirt, but uh, you know if you're <laughs> if you're dealing with with the Jameis Winston and everything else, and you're winning national titles, it's one thing, but you know to to <laughs> to have the level of ineptitude that Shalala has brought to the yeah. the athletic programs, and coupled with the fact that you've had this decline in in uh, winning percentages, it's a tough uh, it's a tough mix to stomach for sure. Makes me glad I, I attended FSU. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I didn't mean to step in the middle of a heated uh, well, you know, I heated did, radio I, program listen, rivalry I, here. I took theory and practice of football at FSU. Wow, the best That's... class in the entire entire universe what percentage of your classmates were uh football players it was it was 80 percent football players 15 percent cops and then five percent just a few of us like that thought it was going to be really cool and it actually actually was an amazing class the whole goal of the class was to certify you to teach uh to to run a high school football program interesting yeah that's pretty fascinating actually yeah yeah they brought in the refs they brought in uh the trainers um they taught you formations plays best class at fsu and i still have the book from that class interesting wow so they do it differently there at fsu very <laughs> very differently and you know the one thing that they've done there that's been very different is that they found continuity yeah you know like like with the university of miami they always had somebody come in they'd bring the program up then during the late 80s and early 90s they they managed to find some continuity even though there was a lot of coaching changes yeah um but FSU has had two coaches since 1974. That's a huge part. And, uh, you know, your producer and I were talking before we came in here that I think a huge part of it's the Orange Bowl, too. You know, going back to the stadium shuffle, you know, you can imagine, uh, in my mind, FSU losing 23-7 to at halftime. If that game's in the Orange Bowl with that it's kind over. of atmosphere – it's you're not over. you're not coming back in the second half. It's it's a different game in Sun Life Stadium. It's just something something's missing. A piece of the equation is gone. Final thoughts, drastic. Stadium. <laughs> final thoughts. Final thoughts, my friend. Final thoughts. Final thoughts. Hey, look, I'm rooting for baseball to come back and be pure just as much as the next guy. You know, and and I want to see. I want it to be back where guys are skinny again. You know, when Daryl Strawberry is the biggest guy and he looks like uh, a stick figure out there. Um, and hopefully we're on that we're, we're on that way, and hopefully the uh, the cheaters won't keep staying a step ahead of uh, the testers. That's going to be the the other big thing here. Well, that's about all the time we have for tonight. Tim, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And when can they find you at the Miami Book Fair International this weekend? I'll be uh, speaking at noon on Sunday. I believe it's room seventy one twenty eight over at the uh, Miami Dade College campus. Well, that's all the time we have for tonight. This is the Only in Miami show, and we'll be back next Monday night at 7.